Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Raj Sahuli, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital and NYU Grossman School of Medicine. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcast committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Judith Matthew from Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Kravis Children's Hospital. She presented a challenging case entitled Successful Conservative Management of Aortic Thrombi After Neonatal Arch Repair at the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society's annual meeting this past September. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew, for joining me. So please tell us a little bit about this case. Um, thank you again for having me. Um, the reason why I chose to write up this case is because it represented for me a particularly uh, difficult presentation um, and management decision um, that involved a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so initially, when I first met this patient, he was about two days old, was diagnosed fetally with um, mild arch hypoplasia, as well as coarctation or the potential for development of coarctation postnatally. And on initial postnatal echocardiogram was noted to have a significant coarctation that would require repair. In discussion with the CT surgical team, the decision was made that uh, it would be best to not only repair the co-arc, but also patch augment the uh, transverse arch because of the degree of hypoplasia um, and to utilize the sternotomy approach, um, which he underwent on day of life two, uh, which was grossly unremarkable, uncomplicated in its course. Um, And he came back to the PCICU or Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Unit um, for post-operative management um, with very minimal complications, um, just some brief periods of hypertension for which he required IV um, cardine for management, but that was on for a very brief period of time. By post-op day three, he was doing very well, um, hemodynamically stable, and the decision was made to transfer him to the NICU for further uh, management of feeding and growing and also monitoring of chest tube output. Fairly soon after his transfer to the NICU and on starting um, PO feeding, it was noted that he did have chylothorax, and so the decision was made to transition to end support for management of the chylos effusions. He did well however, continued to struggle with feeding and so did require NG tube and gavage feeds uh, for the next couple of weeks. And around post-op day 19 or 20, he was noted to have a fever. And the only potential source for the fever that could be noted on physical exam was some mild dehiscence of his um, surgical wound. A full infectious workup was sent, including um, CBC, inflammatory markers, and blood culture, of course. And he was started on broad-spectrum antimicrobials. CRP was elevated. Hemodynamically, he remained stable initially, but the decision at that point was that we would transfer the patient back to the pediatric cardiac ICU just for closer monitoring in case there was some concern for instability. Then two days later, um, during one of my call shifts, I was notified by the advanced practice provider that the patient looked unwell and appeared to be acutely hypertensive. I arrived at the bedside and noted that the upper extremity blood pressure that was obtained was in the 130s over 80s. The patient looked um, in some degree of respiratory distress um, to Kipnik with increased retractions. He appeared to be gray and mottled, particularly 
distally. And when I attempted to obtain femoral pulses, it was very difficult. Um, his lower extremities felt very cool. Cap refill was about four seconds. And in the setting of understanding his prior uh, surgical history, our concern became um, if there was some either developing coarctation or arch obstruction that might have been uh, missed, though it was a very acute presentation for that to have occurred, seeing as the rest of his vitals throughout the day had been very stable. That being said, we did obtain an upper and lower extremity pressure, and there was a new 70 millimeter gradient that was obtained at that time. Um, that and the loss of pulses in the poor cap refill made us concerned about acute arch obstruction, and our cardiology team was notified. We were able to get a pretty emergent echocardiogram to assess, and it was noted that there was a fairly large thrombus that was sitting within the um, distal aspect of the ascending and proximal portion of the transverse arch um, with some extension into the uh, right carotid artery as well. With that new finding, he was started immediately on unfractionated heparin infusion for anticoagulation. That's interesting. How did you guys decide on starting heparin versus other agents? I think the decision that drove the uh, commencement of the infusion of unfractionated heparin was particularly the patient's clinical presentation at the time. The fact that he had signs of acute um, hyperperfusion distally and the concern for further rapid progression of this thrombus. Um, we wanted to start an agent that we could get on quickly, um, bolus, and try to um, titrate quickly. And so the IV infusion of heparin was the more acute choice with the concept that downstream, if the patient did well and stable, we would transition to potentially another agent. And even at that point in time, there was still other workup that needed to be done to determine exactly how significant this was and whether or not other potential options should be considered, such as either thrombolysis or thrombectomy. Great. Tell me more on how the patient did. So soon after we actually noticed the thrombus on echocardiogram, um, I would say uh, only a matter of hours later, he ended up having what appeared to be seizure-like activity with uh, focal tonic-clonic movements and um, some eye deviation. A stat head CT was performed and there was noted to be a new right frontal infarct. We also were able to follow that up with an MRI and an MRI, um, and there was noted to be this partial occlusion of the distal common carotid, which at that point seemed to be indicative of the source of the infarction for our patient. Um, he had an EEG placed um, and neurology was also consulted and that movements that he was noted to be having seemed to be consistent with seizure activity and so he was started with phenobarbital for medical management initially. At the same time that we were managing his neurologic findings, we still had the concerns about his lower perfusion and also the concern for um, bowel ischemia or gut hyperperfusion. At this time, he was noted to be particularly distended, though soft, um, and had been feeding through NG, so he was made NPO. The decision was made to go down the route of parenteral nutrition at this time. And so for the next several days, our, ma our main goals were titrating our anticoagulation, monitoring his clinical experience exam, continuing our anti-epileptic therapies, and deciding if we felt that there was no improvement, whether or not thrombolysis or thrombectomy was the best option. I would say the next day, the discussion was had with our CT surgical colleagues about what their threshold would be for a surgical approach. And the concern really had to deal with 
what the potential risks would be to undergo surgery for this patient. Understanding that he was would be a reduced sternotomy uh, would mean this would mean bypass again with a patient who already had an infarct or some neurologic um, compromises, the potential for intracranial hemorrhage, the potential for further embolization of thrombi, even with a thrombectomy. The thought process was that as if he was clinically improving with just IV anticoagulation, that that would probably be the better option when weighed against the risks of a surgical procedure. And so we decided at that point that just to continue to monitor him clinically and if there were any either hemodynamic changes or further evidence of embolic events, then that would be the actual turning point upon which surgery would be the final decision. But he actually continued to do very well. With just the unfractionated heparin infusion, we were able to titrate to our goal PTT. Um, his hemodynamics improved, his distal perfusion improved. We were able to see an improvement in the gradient even after only two to three days of infusion. And he was able to resume feeds, tolerate them well. Uh, we were able to transition from the unfractionated heparin to Lovenox therapy um, as we got closer toward the end of his um his admission. And even from a neurologic standpoint, um, he had no further seizure activity during that admission. We did a repeat ahead CT prior to discharge during that admission, and it appeared to be stable, if not evolving as expected. I also should note that one thing that I forgot to mention in imaging for this patient was that we also obtained a CT of the chest and abdomen um, at the same time because of the concern of the abdominal hypertension. Uh, abdominal findings and, and and gut ischemia or gut hypoperfusion. And it was noted that he also had thrombus within the distal abdominal aorta, right near the bifurcation of the iliacs. And it was actually seen as well that there were some renal infarcts bilaterally. And so though the patient never had any significant acute kidney injury or issues in terms of urine output or anything of that nature, he did have some hypertension, which we managed with enalapril. Um, and the decision was made that he would have close renal follow-up on, on discharge as well with repeat imaging. Before we continue, I would like to take a moment to recognize this episode's sponsor, Atrium Health, Levine Children's Congenital Heart Center. The Congenital Heart Center, established in 2010, has been ranked as one of the top 50 pediatric heart centers in the country by U.S. News & World Report for the last nine years. Our comprehensive services include cardiac imaging, diagnostic and interventional catheterization, invasive electrophysiology, dedicated cardiovascular intensive care staff, and regional referral programs in heart failure, transplantation, adult congenital heart disease, and fetal echocardiography. Surgical and cardiac catheterization volume are growing at a rate of 10 to 15 percent per year. Our state-of-the-art two-lab cardiac catheterization and EP suite open in February of 2017 with dedicated staffing and anesthesia teams. We have one of the most comprehensive cardiac neurodevelopment programs in the Southeast, providing a multitude of specialty services to our congenital heart patients in the same office suite. Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute is one of the Southeast's largest cardiac and vascular programs. Sanger employs more than 110 physicians in a network of more than 25 locations to provide the highest quality care available to patients with cardiovascular disease throughout North and South Carolina. Levine Children's Hospital is a state-of-the-art facility in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. Levine Children's Hospital has 11 floors and 234 inpatient beds, including on-site PICU and CVICU covered 24-7 by in-house intensivists. We are committed to being the region's leading provider of pediatric health care services. Thank you to Atrium Health for sponsoring this episode. 
So definitely we could see that this was a thrombus that had developed unclear the timeline for its development, but definitely had far uh, reaching implications for this patient in terms of emboli, cerebral infarct, and embolization to the renal, renal arteries as well. Thankfully, super systemically, he did well and was able to be discharged on NG feeds, on Lovenox, on his enalapril, and appeared to be doing well neurologically as well with our PT and OT colleagues involved. Um, we started therapies early, and they were already seeing improvement in terms of tone and, and mobility prior to discharge. And my understanding is since he's been home, this was now at least six months or seven months ago, um, he's only continued to thrive. Uh, heme workup was initiated in the hospital, really looking for a possible thrombophilia that might have been a cause, whether it be congenital or acquired, and nothing came of that workup. There was no identifiable congenital um, thrombophilia or mutation um, that was found, but he was able to be transitioned off of the Lovenox onto just aspirin and very recently was discontinued off of the aspirin because his echo was noted complete resolution of the thrombus and he remained clinically stable throughout. That's excellent to hear. I'm glad that the patient is recovering well. You know, this was a very interesting and challenging case with a, a rare complication after cardiopulmonary bypass. You touched on it a little bit, Dr. Matthew, but how did your team decide on conservative management and what other options did you guys weigh at the time? We looked at all of the potential options for this patient uh, when considering how to manage um, neonatal thrombus, uh, thrombosis, particularly arterial thrombosis in this age group. The potentials include anticoagulation and its many different forms in terms of the use of heparin, um, low molecular weight heparin, and other newer agents, even including warfarin, um, thrombolysis with TPA, and or surgical thrombectomy. The options, according to literature, though there's no clear consensus, many people would go the route of starting with um, anticoagulation because it has the safer use profile in this population. At least there's more data for its use um, in this population. And, and depending on the acuity of the patient and the clinical picture for your patient and how they're presenting, depending on the size or location of the thrombus, that helps to drive kind of what agent you start with. But I think a lot of people also start with unfractionated heparin infusions at the beginning versus going straight to the Lovenox. And that, I think, once again, it's a center-specific or clinician-specific decision. Warfarin is not used as commonly in the neonatal population because of the requirements in terms of dietary restrictions and how hard it is to kind of manage levels when you have a patient that's either being breastfed or formula-fed. Whereas I think low molecular weight heparin has its benefits and that it requires less monitoring um, for patients, easier administration for the families, the ability to go home, and with that also the lower incidence of heparin-induced um, thrombocytopenia. So there's a, so many benefits. I think lower molecular weight heparin will win in the long run, and a lot of people will transition to that even after starting unfractionated heparin. In the acute phase, Dr. Matthew, how do you guys decide and who did you who were part of the team that made the decision between thrombolysis, anticoagulation, or thrombectomy? The decision was a joint effort between the cardiac intensivists involved, 
my attending on service during that week, as well as the cardiology service, cardiology attending, not only the patient's primary cardiologist, but also the cardiologist attending that was on service that week, as well as our uh, CT surgeons, doctors uh, Murphy and uh, Pastusco, um, who were notified of the findings of the echo fairly quickly after it was obtained. And the decision was a it was definitely fluid. The conversations were started the minute we had the echo findings about what we thought would be the best course of action, but they wanted to allow time to get a better clinical picture of how the patient would do and um, see if just IV heparin would be enough to get us through because they understood that surgery would be risky, especially on that first day after it was found um, with how he was presented and how unstable he appeared. He required intubation actually that morning uh, around the time of his seizures. And so he wasn't necessarily in the most stable place to go to the OR. And so at least giving a 24-hour period to get a better picture of the patient's course, that was the first discussion. And then after that 24 hours, while well, he's doing well, maybe we can revisit this. Let's put all of the cards on the table and really decide what we think is the safest decision for this patient at this time. What did you personally learn from this case? I honestly learned that we, when we consider the, the risks of aortic arch repair, the potential for thrombosis, it's there, but it's not one of the more common complications that we discuss, especially when we do our pre-op huddles or we talk about these patients uh, with our bedside nurses um, immediately post-op, but it's something that we always have to think about. But on top of that, it's also how far out from the surgery is this a possibility? That was something that I was very surprised at for this patient. We're talking about now three weeks after his initial repair and I being the fellow on overnight and being presented with the patient with an acute arterial occlusion. And to find this on echo, I was very surprised to see this significant of a thrombus and this hemodynamically significant of a thrombus being found with such a, a acute onset of presentation. So I think it's just having that instance of suspicion anytime you have a patient that you're managing in the cardiac ICU. Always remember what their primary physiology was, what they had done, and it doesn't matter how far away from that initial procedure they are there's always the potential for a complication at any point. Um, and so you have to have that illness bias within you to, to recognize that as a potential for decompensation for that patient. That's great. So what are the take-home points you want our listeners to take from this challenging case? The first point would be that though neonatal arterial thrombosis is rare, it is still a possibility and even more so our population is at risk, those who have congenital heart disease and undergo congenital repair. Secondarily, the potential for treatment options for these patients um, varies. And even though there's no clear consensus within the literature, it needs to be a multidisciplinary decision that's made with members of your intensive care, cardiology, and CT surgical teams. And also try to take in the input of the uh, family as well as if you're caring for these patients. Um, but most importantly, lastly, I would say that I just want us to always remember that these complications that we describe to our families in the preoperative period when we're consenting are always a potential decompensation ideology for our patients in the postoperative period. And so just keep yourself open to these possibilities um, when you're presented with a patient who's ill in your unit post-op always have that list of possible events in your mind 
and and keep your clinical assessment broad so that you don't miss anything. That's great. Thank you again, Dr. Matthew, for speaking with me today about your challenging case entitled Successful Conservative Management of Aortic Thrombi After Neonatal Arch Repair. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated info and educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attributions License.